and then um, Southeast Asia, it was readily seen uh, religious extremists that would uh, beat themselves. That was self-inflicted pain that would uh, hopefully bring some type of spiritual satisfaction. You had these people who in their lostness and in their uh, in the grief of their alienation from God would do this. And so it was common to see the flagellations of beating the self, of uh, inflicting pain on the sinful self. There was one missionary who told me about a story. He said, I was getting out of my car one day and I was in front of a Buddhist temple in Thailand. And he said, I could view inside what was taking place and there were a number of men in there who had this spike ball <clears throat> And what they would do, they would hold it over their head and they would drop it on themselves. And so there was blood flowing down their face and, uh, and, and their back of their necks. And he said, my little daughter was with me. And so I was trying to shield her from the scene. And she was behind me, but as curious as young children are going to be, she was peeping out. And in horror, she said, Daddy, Daddy, what are they doing? And uh, he said, Honey, they don't know Jesus. And in her innocence and in her horror, she said, well, hurry and tell them. Hurry and tell them. What you find there is what we, we see in the Scripture with uh, Mount Carmel when Elijah met with those who worshipped the prophets of the grove and the bell. And there was a challenge that day of whose God would answer. And you know the story well. And so those that worshipped Baal and Asherah the scripture says that at some point, understanding that the God was not answering them, they began to slash themselves with swords and with spears, and the blood began to flow. And the scripture says they did this as was their custom. Isn't it sad that people in their alienation from God and people in their lostness seek a spiritual satisfaction in that way, and thus they... They inflict or try to inflict pain, self-induced pain on their own bodies. That's the difference between the gospel of grace and religions of the world. When you come to religions of the world, usually the blood flows from the devotees to God in some attempt to create something. But in Christianity, in the gospel of grace, you always have the blood flowing from God to the sinner. And what we have sung about this morning, what we have read about this morning, and, the, and the, what we're dealing with in these particular weeks is the death of Christ for us on the cross. Jesus died for us. The scripture says that he shed his blood for us. He did it between two thieves. And you know as well as I do that we've taken the cross and we have, um, we've embellished it. We've made it very attractive. We put gold on it. We put it in uh, embroidery. We put it in tapestries. We, uh, we see it in, in, in its beauty in stained glass windows. And uh, we make jewelry out of it and uh, wear it, display it. But you and I know that if we were to really view the cross, it would be a horrifying scene. I remember years ago when I went and saw The Passion of the Christ, which many of you probably did as well. I almost didn't make it through the scourging scene. But if you and I literally were present during a crucifixion, we probably would not be able to handle it. It is that horrifying. 
it is that awful. And if I were to stand here today and, and describe for you basically what crucifixion involved, I could probably make you nauseated. Because when you think about the lacerated veins and the and the, the draining of the fluid from the body and the excruciating thirst and the crushed tendons and the suffocation and all the things that happened in crucifixion. We would be horrified. In hearing the description, we would be horrified if we witnessed it. And thus when John Stott says in his book, when we're confronted with the horror of the cross, you and I literally can draw some truths from that. We can stand there and we draw truth from that. I understand what he is saying. He said, you stand in front of the cross, you understand it in all of its horror, and you can draw a truth about yourself. You can draw a truth about God. And you also draw truth about Jesus Christ. And the first truth that he said about myself and about you and about ourselves, he said, we understand that our sin must be horrible. It must be absolutely horrible. If Christ died on the cross for us, then we draw the conclusion about ourselves that our sin must be absolutely horrible. How did Jesus die? And you can answer that in a number of ways. You can deal with the human side. You can deal with the human level. And you say, well, if you deal with it on that level, we understand that the, the Jewish leadership plotted against him and wanted to get rid of him. He was a threat to them. And so what happens is that they conspire, they plot, and they work with Judas Iscariot the man from Cario, who will betray him into their hands, and then they will try him, and then they will turn him over to the Romans who will crucify him. That's how Jesus died on the human level. But what about the divine level? It's a whole other ballgame. You would say this, God gave him up, and he gave himself up. But if you move away from the human level and you deal with the spiritual aspects of crucifixion and Christ's death on the cross, you understand that my sin sent him there. Your sin sent him there. And his love took him there. For you answer the question, why did he die? And Paul gives the answer in Romans 6, 23. He said, the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus died because of sin. Not his sin, but my sin. Here is a man who had no sin, but he willingly took my sin and your sin upon himself, and he died on a cross for me. We call that, and we will deal with that much, uh, much later, the substitutionary atonement. Jesus died for me. Jesus died on my behalf. It happened because of my sin. And my sin must be horrible if Jesus did that for me. When you look at Scripture, 
unlike English, the Greek and the Hebrew have a number of words and vocabulary, especially when it talks about sin. And so you have words there that may say sin is missing the target, or uh, sin is rebellion against God, sin is lawlessness. But when you read Scripture in total, it basically is presenting sin as godless, self-satisfaction, self-centered sin. It is a refusal to obey the Lord of life and to obey the creator of this world. It is an attempt to live independently. It is a refusal to be dependent upon God. It's, it's a claim of autonomy. It's sort of like I want to be equal with him. I want to take his place. And so bottom line with sin is defiance and arrogance and a desire to be equal with God. And when we fail to deal with the gravity of sin, I think we miss a great truth of the cross and understand how horrible our sin really is. And folks, we have really gotten away from this. We have really gotten away from this. Today, we, we excuse sin. <clears throat> we dismiss it. We deny it. We downplay it. We rank it. My sin is far less than yours. Whatever you've done is far worse than what I've done. That's the way we approach it. We rename it. I remember years ago reading a book by Carl Menninger, and some of you may have read it too, and it's, the title of the book was Whatever Became of Sin. And he said sin is basically disappearing from our society. And he, I remember, I think it was uh, as accurate, that he said the last president, and I don't know what it is now, it may not, this is when he wrote the book, but he said the last president that mentioned sin publicly was Dwight Eisenhower. That's how far back you go before somebody will actually mention sin. We just don't talk about it. We make it go away. And so he said, whatever became of sin, he said, we've sent a lot of it to the couch. It's a now a disease. He said, we send some of it to the police. It is now a crime. But he said, what we have basically done is rename it, and we have gotten rid of it. And what you have people doing today is blaming their environment, blaming their genes, and blaming their parents. They weren't raised right. But if we're sinful, and we are, and if we're guilty before God, and if we're accountable for that sin, then sin is a dangerous and horrifying thing. And I like what John Stott says in his book. He says, when you understand and admit that you're sinful, and admit that you're sinful before God, and admit that you are worthy of its punishment, he said, that does not diminish human dignity. He said, it enhances it. Because he said, the Bible takes sin seriously because it takes man seriously. We are God's highest creation. We are not like the animals. And God has held us accountable. Our sin is horrible. And Christ died on the cross for us. And Stott is right. When we would view the cross and all of its horror, 
we have to draw the conclusion. If my sin sent him there, my sin must be awful. But the second part of that, he said, and his love took him there, he said that you can draw a conclusion about God. And the conclusion you draw about God when you stand and look at the horrifying scene at the cross is that his love must be absolutely amazing. God's love must be wonderful. Years ago, I, <clears throat> I had a little B210 Datsun. I drove that because it was so economical. That was way in the past, and that thing was shot. It was totally shot. In fact, it was so shot it was embarrassing. <clears throat> and I took it in one Saturday and traded it, and I got me a 1984. This was 1985. I got me a used, there's only 4,000 miles on it, a 1984 Delta 88 Oldsmobile. I thought it was a great, a great, a great buy. In that day, <clears throat> you didn't have keyless entry, of course, but this was a step up. You knew that had to lock all the doors. It was one of those where you, when you put the key in the lock, you could turn it one way or the other and open all of the doors, unlock all of the doors, or lock all of the doors. I thought that was really a, a great improvement. I went out one morning to unlock the car, <clears throat> and my key wouldn't go in the keyhole of the front door or the driver's side. I thought, what in the world is wrong? And as I examined it, I realized that somebody had taken a stick, and they had stuck it into the keyhole and jammed it in there, and then the stick was broken off. There was no way to open the door. There was no way to make it work. So I started looking for the culprit. I figured it was somebody in the house. <clears throat> And uh, the culprit was my little four-year-old daughter. And she had been out there playing, and she decided that she would open the car, but she chose to use a stick <laughs> instead of a key, and now she had jammed the keyhole, and there was no way to make it work. Well, what am I going to do with her after I found out who had done it, who the guilty party is? Would I stop loving her? Absolutely not. Would I give up on her? Absolutely not. I could send her a bill to pay for it, <clears throat> but she didn't have any money, and she didn't have any way to pay for it. And she could have said, Daddy, I'm so sorry, and, and, and I'll wash the car, and, and I'll never do this again, and she could have made all of these amends, but that wouldn't have fixed the problem. I realized that the only thing that I could do if I wanted it fixed was to pay for it myself. When it comes to sin, it wasn't an innocent mistake. It was serious. We talked about that a moment ago. It was arrogance. It was, a, it was the desire to be like God and take his position. What is God going to do with Adam and Eve? What is he going to do with us in our sin? Is he going to quit loving us? No. Is he going to give up on you? Is he going to give up on me? No. It doesn't matter how many times we say, I'm sorry, I will never do it again. It doesn't fix the problem. God realized that the only way to fix the problem was to pay for it himself. Thus you put in perspective 
the, one of the greatest verses of Scripture and the verse that we learned early on as children and that we can almost all say by memory and sometimes because of that take for granted. For God so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and when you hear the word only there it, it is that which intensifies the love for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die on a cross so that we could be saved folks that that, that is more than love it is grace that is love to the undeserving I have a son, and I love him dearly. I don't think I could give him up for anybody, let alone the unrighteous. Do you understand what we're talking about here? That God in his love gave his only begotten son up on the cross to die for us a substitutionary death. Paul, uh, John said it this way in 1 John. He said, this is love. Not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. You go to St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and there's a marble statue there Christ, uh, of Christ, sort of life-sized, in his agony on the cross. And the caption to that statue is this, this is how God loved the world. This is how God loved the world. You know that if you want a definition of the love of God, you don't go to a dictionary. You go to the cross. And I need to remind us that we, we will get to those places in our lives, and you probably have been there already, where you will question the love of God. You'll get into a dilemma. You'll get into pain. You get into crisis where you may doubt the love of God. And what I do, and I, and I would encourage you to do, is to always at that moment go to the cross. Don't, don't look at the situation. Let the situation take you to the cross. Because there is where the love of God is demonstrated and that's where we need to go to get our heart and our mind right when we begin to doubt the fact that He loves us. I love that great hymn by Charles Wesley, Amazing Love. How can it be that Thou, my God, that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Folks, it is... It is more than we can comprehend. It is more than we can take in. And Stott is right. You stand before the cross in all of its horror, and all of its pain. And he says you draw some conclusions very quickly. And one of them is that our sin is awful. And he said you've also got to draw the conclusion about God that his love is absolutely wonderful. But he said there's a third truth to draw about Jesus Christ. <clears throat> And he said, in front of the cross, you draw the conclusion that salvation must be a free gift. 
salvation is a free gift. When you read on from John 3.16, it says to us there, and, he did, and God did not send him into the world so that the world could be condemned, or he did not send him so that he would destroy the world. He sent him so that the world, so that you and I could be saved. It was a bridge for reconciliation. And so what happened on the cross is that Jesus purchased our salvation with his blood. What does that mean? What do, you, what do you understand when you read the word blood like that in the New Testament? What does it mean? It means life has ended. It means that life has been laid down. Jesus' life ended on the cross. He laid his life down on the cross. He shed his blood. That's what it means. And he did it for me. And when he did that, he purchased my salvation. What did I pay for it? What did you pay for it? Absolutely nothing. You've heard sermons on the words of the cross, the utterances of Jesus and what he said, and everybody zeroes in on those statements and tries to figure out what was taking place. But one of them that was profound, that deals with this, that deals with the purchase, are the words, it is finished. It is finished. I came on a mission. And I died, I laid my life down, and I purchased something, and I want you to know it's done. It's finished. It's the Greek word to tell us die. It's in the perfect tense. When he said it, it means it has been purchased, and it will forever be purchased. It's a common Greek word. When an artist used it, it was when he said, it's over, and he had put the last touch of color on the canvas. When a priest used it, it meant that the sacrifice was pronounced perfect. It was accepted. When the servant used it, it meant that the task is done. What he told me to do, what the master said do, it's over, it's complete. And when a merchant used it, it meant the debt is paid in full. Jesus said, it is finished. And it's finished work offered to me and offered to you. And there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn it. There's absolutely nothing we can do to buy it. There's absolutely nothing we can do except receive it. And that's why we read a moment ago from Ephesians 2.89, this, for this, is by grace. For grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one, no one can boast. John, John Stott in his book on the cross says, if anybody tries to be saved any other way, then by the way that Jesus purchased salvation through him he said it is utter paganism that's a strong statement isn't it and he went on to say paganism is not atheism 
He said, pagans believe in some kind of God. He said, I'm not talking about atheism. He said, I'm talking about paganism, which is the belief that man can please God by something he does rather than by what God has done. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful to hear that salvation is a free purchased gift offered to us? Nothing we could do. He did it all. It is finished. One day Jesus is going to come. Until he does that and you and I die, we're going to be making our way to heaven if we know him as Savior. And when we get to heaven, we're not going to be strutting around talking to everybody up there saying, you know how I got here? You know what I did? You won't believe what I did. You can't believe how hard I worked. There's not going to be any one-upmanship in heaven because we're all there the same way through him. I have come by the way of the cross. I tell you what, Stott's right. Stand before the cross in all of its horror, and you will say something about yourself that's true. You will admit immediately something about God that is true. And you will understand that salvation is a free gift that Jesus purchased. And we did nothing to earn it. And we stand there in our humility, understanding the grace and the love of God, and say, hallelujah, I have been redeemed. The gift of salvation, for God so loved the world. What an amazing truth. What an amazing reality. And that reality is ours. Father, we don't understand it. How could we ever, ever fathom the love of God? How could we ever understand what you did for us? But it's true. And it's clearly told in Scripture. And today we celebrate the Christ who is our substitutionary atoning one. And we thank you for the salvation that he purchased and for the fact that through faith we have believed and the worth and the importance and all of the ramifications of that salvation has been imputed to us through him. And we praise you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.